0: I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I have Dr. Nicole Rochester here, who is uh, an amazing health advocate, um, pediatrician, and um, has all these wonderful navigator nuggets and all these great things that I'll let her tell you about um, that she does. So Nicole, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I, I saw one of her, we're connected on social media, but I saw one of her incredible videos on LinkedIn and knew I had to... Um, Interview her and, and get more of her her knowledge and expertise. So, thank you for joining. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about what you do, um, your interest in in healthcare disparities, and um, and yeah, we'll start start with that.
1: Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me, and thank you for creating this platform. You know, I think it's really important that we all join in this fight to kind of highlight disparities. So I am Dr. Nicole Rochester. As you stated, I am a board certified pediatrician um, and I left clinical medicine in 2017 to become an independent health advocate. And that was a journey that was really inspired by my caregiving experiences. I was a caregiver to my late dad uh, for about three years and really was kind of floored by the complexity of our healthcare system and how Patients, particularly elderly patients, are treated in our healthcare system. And I just became intimately familiar with all the barriers that exist in the system. And so, after I, you know, after he passed away and I reflected on how many times I was able to get things done for him simply because of my experience, my knowledge, my title, um, you know, my influence, I felt compelled to turn that around and use that information and that experience to help others. Um, So I am the CEO of a company called Your GPS Doc, where I primarily work with family caregivers to help them get the care that their loved ones need. And when it relates to healthcare disparities, you know, I have been kind of I've been interested in this honestly since medical school. And I just remember back in the 90s and yes, I went to medical school in the 90s. you know there we had all of these professors that would just come in and share all of this grim data about diabetes and about heart disease and about you know cancer and pretty much every disease and how african americans had two times the rate of this and three times the rate of that but there was never any context and um you know it it almost was kind of this implication like we were biologically inferior or that, that there were things that we were doing to ourselves that were causing these differences and outcomes. And then I'll never forget, we had this professor that came and talked about like teen pregnancy and was just, I mean, she just was so disparaging um, toward African-Americans. And so I'm a little bit of a rebel. And so after her lecture, I was like really angry and gathered up some of my classmates of color and, and some white classmates. And, you know, we drafted this like letter and we met with the dean and, you know, that led to a whole lot of other changes. And so I've been interested in this topic for a long time. And like you and I spoke offline, you know, this, the COVID-19 pandemic um, and how it's playing out in communities of color was not a surprise to me or to you or to many people, but it has been fascinating to watch how the country seems to have been shocked by this. And so, you know, I did um, recently talk about that on my weekly Facebook live show and just really trying to raise awareness, but also provide solutions.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so powerful. I love that story. And I, I shudder to think like looking back at the ways I perpetuated racism, systemic racism and the healthcare system and the way I interacted with patients, No, never overt coming to yes. me at least, but the, the bias and stuff like that. And, and I just, I look back, um, I have this online course I, I offer, um, about, uh, bias and, and, uh, I just like I use so many of my own personal examples of 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 my re- interactions in the healthcare system, and so I'm so grateful that you were a rebel and spoke up, and I'm glad that you were able to make some changes. And I, I wish I could go back in time for many reasons, but this would be one of them where I wish I could kind of revisit um, from this lens. So um, I'd love to know from your perspective. Because the data came out, like yeah, you, just like you're saying, the data came out, I believe it was a, a week ago. Yeah, about a week ago. today. And I remember thinking, you know, we started hearing stuff about, oh, you know, for people staying at home, it, if they're in a violent situation, if they're, you know, around substance abusers or whatever. But we didn't really hear, we weren't hearing anything. Mm-hmm. Do you have any conjectures on why data about race wasn't released? Do you think that was totally just oversight or you think people were too busy like stamping out disease or what what do you think it
1: yeah you know it's it's a great question honestly it's something I haven't thought a lot about you know there's always there's a part of me that always wants to believe the best about people and you know I'm generally an optimist at heart but when it comes to this topic and you know if you think back to just the history of our healthcare system and racism and disparities, I have to, part of me definitely believes that um, there, it may have been intentionally hid, you know, and I remember that there were activists requesting this information, um, you know, many weeks before it was finally released and there were all kinds of excuses as to why we weren't um, being, being given access. And, you know, I read an article the other day that stated that, you know, race and ethnicity, like this data is on death certificate. So it's hard to believe that it wasn't easily and readily available prior to a week ago. So I, you know, I can't speak for why it wasn't released. I'm glad that it was finally released. Um, you know, I think, I think there's probably multi, it's probably multifactorial, right? People are stamping out disease but because that information is so readily available, it, it it there's a part of me that wonders why, you know, if it was intentionally suppressed
0: or just, or just like it not
1: felt to be important
0: white gays, know? not knowing that we would need to pay attention to that almost like yeah. just assuming that it is, you know, not, not, not even anticipating that it would be a, something to think about or ask. I don't know. It's, it's very, yeah, or,
1: or they saw it and thought, okay, you know, like, yeah, more black people are dying and you know, like, yeah,
0: sure. <laughs> it's, it's really complicated. Um, and uh, you know, has the answers. I've just always I've uh, been very curious about that. So your approach to health advocacy, I love, it's very centered on the, the patient and their caregiver. Um and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the struggles you've seen pre-COVID in but you talked about it a little bit with with your father, and I'm sorry to hear about your loss. Thank I you. love how you've turned it into something so positive. A little bit about what the what the barriers might be pre-COVID, because again, these issues are being brought to light by COVID but are not new. Um, and and what you think how COVID has how you, because you're not clinical either, as as I am not, how you think that from, from what you've heard and, and, and seen from people who are still working clinically, how that's playing out now in, in COVID.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, pre-COVID, what, what I saw frequently with, with my, my dad and and many other members of my family, other friends, and my clients now, um, as it relates to healthcare disparities and just our healthcare system in general, is that you know, our, our healthcare system is incredibly complicated and, you know, you, you see, I've seen in in many of our physician Facebook groups, you know, doctors who say, you know, my mom is in the hospital or my aunt or whoever. And, you know, they just, they're flabbergasted by how difficult it is, even for those of us who are intimately familiar with the system and with the medical terminology. Um, So I think a lot of the barriers that I have seen, one, just come with, with knowledge, you know, and it's not, it's not just the knowledge of what is diabetes, what is high blood pressure, it's really how do you navigate that, and when you have these conditions, how do you get the care that you need within a system that is incredibly biased, that's incredibly complicated, and so, you know, I, what I found um, when I was advocating and caring for my dad is that there's just a lot that the average layperson doesn't know, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't understand a lot of times the, the complexities of Health insurance, and they don't understand, um, you know, that they really have a voice in the in the medical on the medical team. Um, many people don't realize that there are multiple ways to treat conditions, that doctors, you know, we are biased, and I'm not talking about racial bias now, but depending on where you trained, you know, where you did medical school, where you did your residency, you are um, biased as to how you even approach certain conditions you know, there's certain medications that doctors may just routinely prescribe. <clears throat> and so as patients and as caregivers, you know, we don't realize often that there are more ways, there are other ways to treat a condition. So for an example, if you are going to the doctor for a particular problem, and maybe they've prescribed a medication, and you're having lots of side effects, most patients don't even realize that there may be five other medications that could treat that condition. Mm, yeah, um, and maybe you don't have to suffer from those three, four, you know, side effects. And so they'll just suffer through it, or they'll stop taking their medication. Then they may get labeled as non-compliant. That's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> but they don't feel empowered, you know, in that visit to say, "Hey, doctor, you know, I'm having this problem and this problem and this problem. Could this be a result of that medication that you started me on last month? Are there any other options?" you know, and just engaging in dialogue, um, even saying, okay, you want it, you want me to have this particular test or you want me to have this surgery? What are my options? You know, generally the default is just to say, okay. And um, you know, knowing that appointment times are shortened, you know, we, there's there, the dialogue that really needs to happen is just not occurring. And so most patients and their caregivers don't even know that they should be having those conversations. They don't know that they should be asking questions, that they should be, you know, maybe pushing back, that if they don't understand something, it's okay to say, could you repeat that? I didn't understand that. You know, they're, they're so, they know that the doctors are rushed and they know that, you know, they're, they are focused on so many other things. And so there's like this desire to be polite and this desire to not be a nuisance and to not be a bother. But as a result of that, you know, many people are not receiving the care that they deserve.
0: That's so powerful. I'm just like thinking about all these people on ventilators now who aren't allowed to have visitors.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: And now realizing, looking back that like five to one are probably black patients, you know what I mean? Or some yes. ridiculous. And so can you talk about, I mean, I'm about to start crying. Can you, can you talk about now COVID, like, add 18 billion levels of complexity and isolation. And uh I mean, the doctors are, I think, doing an amazing job. They're doing the best yes. they can. And like, but how, how do we, how do people advocate for themselves without having anybody there? Yeah. And while being so, so sick, can you, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah.
1: I mean, that, that is really, I mean, I cry or almost cry when I think about it too, because I think about, There were so many times when I was at my dad's bedside and I, you know, there were mistakes that were made or near mistakes, you know, near misses. He was allergic to aspirin, but yet he would frequently present with chest pain. So can I tell you how many times I had to say, stop, don't give him aspirin, despite the big red band on his his, um, wrist, you know, Um, and just times when I would, you know, push back or question things that weren't being done, things that should have been done. And so to know that, you know, these patients are in the hospital or presenting for care and they don't have someone else that can advocate for them. And to know that, you know, when you are sick, particularly with COVID, you're short of breath, you're, you're literally afraid for your life. And we know that when you're under stress, you are not taking in all the information that is being shared. You know, and you, that's, those are the times when you really need that third party to write down what the doctor is saying, to, you know, talk about it later. And so it, it really pains me and it scares me to know that patients are suffering without the ability to have a family member or some other advocate at their bedside. And so, you know, what I am telling all of my clients, friends, family members, anybody that will listen, is that, you know, you have to learn how to do that remotely. And so, you know, those phone calls, you know, even at, da- at least daily, if not two or three times a day, you know, to the nurse's station, trying to get that doctor on the phone, even if it's just for a minute or two, you know, to get those updates, making sure that when you the patient is first hospitalized, that someone in that family who knows that person well is calling and making sure that the medical team has a list of their medical problems, you know their medications, mm-hmm. their the surgeries. You know that critical history that may impact how that patient is treated, whether they're considered high risk versus low risk. Um, you know that information is incredibly important, and I think in many cases it's lacking. You know, particularly if the patient presents already in extremis. Um, you know, normally somebody would follow behind them in the in the uh, car, and they would be at the bedside and they'd be updating the doctors, but you know, now they don't have that ability. So we can't just give that up though. I mean, we still have to use the other means of communication. We have to make those phone calls and emails and really do everything that we can to continue to advocate for our loved ones in spite of the fact that we can't be there in person.
0: I wonder, I'm just thinking now they should be like additional staff at the hospitals to Absolutely. make these calls so that you know like i wonder if that's something that they're doing and, and i'm almost wondering if that's something that i could help with you know I mean, making they, phone they calls
1: so one of my great aunts was actually just she's been hospitalized or had been hospitalized for about two weeks just came home yesterday for a non-covid problem but you know we got to experience how did you know how does this work when you have a family member in the hospital and i can say in the facility where she was they were employing, you know, um, people who like some of the physical therapy, my uncle got a call from the physical therapist, um, you know, just giving an update. And of course, it was a little frustrating because when we would ask more medical questions, they were like, well, I don't know that part. You know, I was just asked to call you and give you an update. But then that person would pass on our questions to the nurse or to the doctor. But they are employing all Good. of the team Good. Wow. to make these phone calls um, so that they can free up, you know, the people that are at that bedside front line so you know I can only speak for that facility but I I do think that many hospitals and and even nursing homes and other facilities are doing their best to try to engage other members of the team to stay in contact with the family members
0: that's wonderful so I think so yeah so really focusing on like calling in several times a day being an advocate can you talk a little bit about um, there sometimes feels like a little bit of a battle between a, an advocating family and and the physician. Um, oh, and, yeah. and your your thoughts about that, and and how that might be exacerbated, and what we can do as healthcare professionals, like from both sides, you know, like like as the as the pro, I don't want to say provider that triggers a lot of people, but as the person who's taking care of the patient, what what should we know? about the people who are advocating, and as the, advocate, as the advocates themselves, how can we all understand each other better?
1: Yeah, I think that's, thank you for that question. It's really important. Um, you know, I, I think historically, and I think a lot of this has to do with the healthcare system and the constraints that it puts on doctors and other healthcare providers. And, you know, so we, are intimately aware of the fact that we have a limited amount of time. And particularly if you're in an outpatient setting, you know, when you have appointments. And so an empowered patient or an empowered caregiver can really kind of appear to throw your day off. And so they can, you know, present as a threat. And I think personally, I'll just share this really quickly. Um, years ago when my mother-in-law was critically ill in the hospital, and you know, this is before I was your GPS doctor. You know, I was just her daughter-in-law and I happened, happened to be a physician. But we had this family meeting that I actually called because things were just a mess. And it was clear that the doctors weren't really talking to one another and she was literally dying. And um, during this meeting, as I'm asking questions and asking follow-up questions and advocating for, you know, whether she needed to be transferred, a note was passed between two of the doctors. And um, I didn't see this happening, but after the fact, my sister-in-law pulled me aside and said, what does high maintenance mean? Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and I was like, why are you asking me that? And she said, well, while you were at talking, one doctor wrote high maintenance on a piece of paper and passed it to her colleague. And I was just over, I mean, I was pissed off. I was oh sad. You know, I had all of the emotions. Oh but later when I reflected on it, I had to acknowledge, you know, have I used that word before? Yes. Uh-huh. Have I signed out to a colleague and said, this is a difficult or, you know, I'm a pediatrician, so we usually say this is a difficult mom or a difficult family. And so, you know, it really made me think, analyze my, my own actions. And so I think, you know, we as, as doctors and other healthcare providers need to understand that, first of all, what, would you, what if that was your family member? And, and I always have approached, you know, when I was more active clinically, Every pediatric patient that I took care of, I thought about it as what if this was my child? And when my, you know, and so I encourage people who take care of adults, what if that was your mom? What if that was your dad? You would want to be, you know, you would be an advocate as well. And and I think we as as healthcare providers need to understand that it, we want we should want our patients and their family members to be involved because ultimately that helps us. Yes, it may take up a little bit more of our time on the front end. But imagine, you know, how much more compliant that patient will be. Imagine how easier, how much easier your future encounters, your future dialogue with that patient will go once you've established that trust, you know, once you have empowered them to ask questions and to understand their condition. Um, And so it really, a little bit of investment on the front end just goes a long way. And there are many studies that show that when, you know, patients are informed, when they are educated about their condition, they are more likely to follow through with the things that we ask them to do. And so ultimately it's a win-win, you know, you're gonna have a healthier patient, a happier patient, they're gonna help you do your job better. So I think, uh, especially now, you know, we we have to embrace the idea that patients and their caregivers are, are not just like an afterthought, they really are at the center or should be at the center mm-hmm. Of the medical team, and that we all have to work together to make sure that you know everyone that the patients are getting what they need. So you know, going back to health disparities, I think unfortunately, most people of color, um, and, and even people that aren't of color, if they are in a lower um, socioeconomic status or if they don't have a certain educational level, they are not as um, prepared to effectively advocate for themselves in healthcare settings and so i think you know that plays into i know that that plays into the healthcare disparities because if you are not able or if you're not empowered to speak up for yourself then you know you're just not going to even be offered some of the therapies that are offered to that difficult patient because no matter what we say you know those are the, the squeaky wheel gets the oil yeah and so if you don't have the tools to be that squeaky wheel then then what kind of care are you receiving
0: yeah and i wonder because i a lot of the work i do is about recognizing your reaction to things like that's the whole basis of my anti-racism course is recognizing your defensiveness and your discomfort and all these things yes i wonder if there was some training we could do for physicians and other other healthcare professionals of when you start to feel defensive about Families advocating—if yeah. that can be your cue—to not close down and not blame them, but to to really tune in and listen. Because I love that idea. Because there's—that's what happens. I think that's just human nature. You you get challenged. You don't like to hear it. There's always a grain of truth in it. Yeah. And so what will often happen is you'll be like, no, like like no, twice as hard, you know, and 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 really sh- shut down, and, and that that barrier is even harder to break down. Um, can, you, can you talk about your 92nd... Um, encounter? Encounter and, yeah. and what that is and how you think that helps and, and how you think that could help in, in COVID and, and maybe you and I talked offline a little bit, uh, what that means for the broader set, implication of, of healthcare disparities and, and um, discrimination.
1: Sure, yeah, thanks for asking that so when when I was caring for my dad, one of the things that really literally broke my heart is that I felt and saw that he was invisible, and what I mean when I say that and, and I, you know part of it may have been that he was African American, part of it may have been that he was elderly, part of it may have just been you know that he was a patient, and this is how we view patients but you know, I felt that many of the doctors and nurses didn't see—they didn't see my dad—and they didn't see my dad because they didn't know my dad. So mm-hmm. my dad was, you know, the patient in room 248, or my dad was, you know, the hypertensive. And we all do this. I mean, we have—I have called patients, you know, the asthmatic, mm-hmm. um, you know, the sickler. I was just that. Yeah, I mean, I, that. yeah, I mean we, we we say these things, and we don't—we don't—we don't we need don't don't to be disparaging. But when you see your patients by their condition or by the room number that they occupy, then they, they really become invisible to you, to you. And so I made it a point to share information about my dad that really just humanized him. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the 90 second encounter is, is something that I talked about in my TEDx talk, where I feel like the, at the crux of the whole breakdown of our healthcare system, and even when it comes to physician burnout and depression, is a lack of genuine human connection. And you know, the electronic medical record and all the other things that have forced us to kind of disconnect from our patients ha- has really been a detriment. And so what I propose is that every doctor at the beginning of every single encounter, whether it's in the hospital, the ER, your private office, is that you spend 90 seconds, just 90 seconds getting to know that patient on a personal level. It could be, "Hey, what's the best book you've ever read?" or "Where did you go for vacation last year?" And you know, if you're a primary care doctor, you actually have a relationship. Maybe you remember that the last time they were there, their daughter was getting married. And so in that 90 seconds you say, "Hey, you know, I remember last time you were here, your daughter was getting married. How did it go?" And and it's just it allows you to connect with that person. And, and it benefits the patient because you're seeing them as a real person and not just what's on their chart. But even as the doctor, you know, it, it restores that humanity to that doctor patient relationship. And that's why most of us got into medicine in the first place. And so I believe that that also was like an antidote to you know burnout and all the other ills that are, are facing physicians right now. And so as it relates to healthcare disparities, I mean, it's, so incredibly important because all of us, even myself as an African-American, you know, we all have biases that we have learned from, you know, since we were little, things that people in our lives have told us, things that we've seen on television. And so, you know, if you are walking into the room and you see, uh, you know, a young African-American male who's dressed a certain way and maybe his pants are, you know, sagging, you know, hanging down off of his bottom, you're automatically going to have this, these ideas about this person, and you're going to, you know, maybe devalue um, that person. But if you spend 90 seconds just talking to that person, you may be surprised. You know, he may be an author, he may be a poet, he may be a caregiver to his 90 year old grandma. And and when we, you know, connect with people on that personal level, mm-hmm. it almost it, it makes it so that you can't not can't, but it's less likely. That your underlying biases are going to come into play, you know, and you're going to be more, like your your human, the human in you is going to come at the forefront, and that's going to impact how you treat that person and the medical care that they receive. So I think it can literally be transformative in uh, healthcare.
0: I love that so much. I remember a patient I had who was uh, um, she was a a black woman in her probably forties or fifties and she was a heroin addict and she had multiple infections, um, on her arms from, from injecting heroin, but she was the nicest, you know, like she was such a wonderful kind woman. I I found in general that like the heroin addict patients I had were all really nice. Um, there's different, different places where I did my training had different types of drug problems and different, uh, of ways they affected the the patient's behavior when they were intoxicated and stuff but she was so sweet and i remember i had like a patient who was a pimp and i was like <laughs> okay but you're also human and like we would you know like it just for me as as a med student it was such this amazing education to actually like talk to people who were so different from me and see the yes. common humanity, but you lose that so quickly in residency mm-hmm. and beyond because you don't have the time. And, and it. it just is like more work for you to do rather than like, Ooh, I have two patients that I'm following and I get to get to know them. And, and the joy of that gets lost very quickly. That's exactly it. So how do you see this, this not this needing to humanize people <clears throat> that happens outside the hospital too. I I had conversations um, in an HIV clinic that I worked in. You know, my intent, like the the, the people I work with there, they're like in the medical community, That you kind of don't get more like do-gooder than that if you're working in an HIV clinic. I feel like that's like a a, a strong team of people who really want to help. Yeah, And we were talking about police violence and, you know, the, 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 the choking and the I can't breathe. And and my, the guy I was working with, he said, yeah, but I mean, he was a thug. Uh, and I remember being like, that sounds weird, but I couldn't at that time put my, like, like, is he right? But it doesn't matter. You know, it's like life is still life. And I think that that gets lost in the broader scope of things as well, not just in the hospital. Um, and this might be more of a topic that we can take on in this interview, but, but, seeing that people who are different from us are humans having that 90 second of connection even if it's silently in your mind without talking to you know maybe you can talk to that person but maybe it's someone that you just see when you're driving or you're in traffic or whatever can you talk a little bit about that and, and your thoughts on that I know it's sort of a little bit of an offshoot but yeah seeing the humanity in everybody even if they aren't exactly like you
1: yeah, I mean, I think you know the the it's definitely needed. I mean, I think the the difficulty um, with that is that you know when it's very hard for all of us to relate to people who are unlike us. And I think that you know again the biases that we've all been taught. You know, and this is systemic; it's all intentional. You know, the images. I mean, this is way beyond the scope of our right. short interview. I, and I know you're familiar with this, but you know, just the images that. Um, are portrayed and, and how the African American community and other communities of color are, are portrayed. You know that is in, embedded and ingrained in um, the subconscious of America. And so, you know, when when you approach someone or when you see someone, whether it's in a medical setting or out on the street, you know that's different from you. All of those messages that you don't even know are there just come, you know, flooding, and and so it leads to you know judgment. And, you know, if you are, if you haven't been in that situation yourself, then it's really difficult to kind of understand. And I mean, that's really where empathy comes in. Um, you know, I mean, we, we really have to be able to put ourselves in other people's shoes um, and just really try to dig deep and to understand why things are happening. So like, again, if we go back to the disparities, you know, it's easy to blame um, African-Americans to say, you know, you guys are obese because all you eat is you know fried food or, or all you eat is processed food or you don't exercise and you know but if you have access to you know a peloton bike <laughs> in your basement like we're staying home now right so all the privileged people who, got, who bought you know bought the peloton bike bikes or people have home gyms they're doing just fine right because they have access to that equipment you know but if you are living in the inner city Um, even before COVID, and you don't have a safe place, you don't have a green space, you don't have a playground, you don't have a track, you don't have a gym membership, you know, and all you have access to is the corner store with, you know, chips and and sodas and junk food, or when you go to your local grocery store, you know, there's very few fresh foods and what's there is wilted and rotten. I mean, this is the reality Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. But if you haven't experienced that yourself, it's easy to just judge someone and say, well, why can't you be more like me without understanding all of the barriers and all of you know the like what their life is is really like so i mean i I don't i don't have all the answers but i think you know as humans we just have to try our best to again learn more about what other people are experiencing and 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 really trying to figure out you know what would you do if, if you were in that same situation, you know, even as an African American female, like I am intimately aware of my own privilege, especially during this COVID-19 pandemic. And the fact that I am blessed to be able to work from home. I haven't, you know, my income hasn't changed. Um, you know, my kids are safe and, you know, our home is big enough that we can all go in different areas of our home and not drive each other crazy. And, you know, many people don't, have that that privilege and that benefit. So I think you know, hopefully, during this pandemic, when we're all forced to you know be still, and um, you know, I, I say physical distancing. I don't like to use the word social distancing, but I hope that we are all taking that time to really be introspective and to just become better people. That's mm-hmm. that's my hope. We cannot come out of this the same way that we were before I mean we have to do better we have to be better
0: it's a reckoning of sorts you know it's really it's it's very very quickly what is unsustainable is making itself very clear you know so so yeah I, I agree so what can people um like you and me who are privileged and at home who who look like either one of us or look different than either one of us what can people do during this physical distancing time? And I've, I just heard that term yesterday and I love it. It's so much better. Um, what can people do to help? What can people do to learn, um, uh, to, to address? I mean, we've been talking a lot about biases. I love how all these different conversations I'm having are so different, but um, to help, you know, address their own stuff, but also help in the outside world explicitly now. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think one of the biggest things people can do is to just acknowledge that we all have bias. Um, you know, we we I don't care whether you think you're racist or not, or, you know, whether it's implicit, explicit, all of us have bias and that's been proven in many studies. So I think that's really the first step is to remove the defense that it's not me or I'm not part of the problem and just to acknowledge and to really begin to examine, you know, what what comes to your mind when you see an African-American teenager or, you know, an African-American woman or, you know, what, what, what are the instant things that pop into your brain when you see, you know, the thug, as you mentioned earlier, um, and to just acknowledge that, that we all have those biases. And then, you know, I mean, in, in all of us can, even, even in our own homes, just begin to um, educate ourselves about the organizations that are in our communities and just outside of our communities, that serve communities of color, um, you, know, and, you know, whether it's making a monetary donation, whether it's volunteering, um, but just really kind of stepping outside of ourselves and, um, you know, big finding out what, what's in my local community, you know, whether it's, you know, in the school system or whether it's the food bank or whether it's a homeless shelter, just all of the resources because um, these organizations are struggling just like, you know, all the other mm-hmm. small businesses and they're going to need monetary help. They're going to need bodies. And, you know, when we're all back to normal. So I think just spending some time educating yourself. Um, and for those of us, you know, those of you or your your viewers who are healthcare providers, you know, again, I just really encourage you to um, examine your own biases and to really just take the time to get to know Your patients, uh, particularly your your patients um, of color, to really try to, you know, spend a little bit of time understanding and learning more about their situation and and empowering them to ask questions, making sure that they understand the information that you have presented. You know, those techniques we learned in medical school teach back that none of us use anymore, you know, but (laughs) instead of just giving some instructions and walking out of the room, you know, taking an extra 60 seconds to say, okay, what do you understand about what I just said to you? You know, just little things like that that can go a really long way in helping um, patients and their caregivers advocate for themselves, helping them get the care that they need, making sure that they are equal partners is just really, really important.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. And maybe even like an attitude shift when you you find yourself getting annoyed at the advocacy switching that to gratitude you know like oh this is a human being that has somebody who loves them that cares that's right rather than this is a threat to my knowledge and expertise and i'm the doctor here and that you know that horrible loop that that um that a lot of that can happen in in medicine like how how dare anyone question my absolute (laughs) authority yeah um Ah, oh, this is so wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. This has been uh, a really, really educational, and uh, we kind of got into it. I feel like we really yeah. tackled some some pretty major stuff. Um, and of course, this is the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of talking about this. But um, uh, really, the humanizing humanizing of of everybody, um, and and realizing that in the hospital, outside the hospital. Um, there's so much more that we have in common, and and recognizing that our biases. And I, I love that you acknowledge that all of us have bias. I mean, and, and to pretend that we don't is a little bit, is a little bit insane, you know. And um, I think acknowledging that and having that be our, our our starting ground is, I think, a really great way for us to start. So I love what you had to say about about that and, and how people can, can reflect during this time as well. Um, can you tell us what, how people can find you and if they're looking for a health advocate, um, how they can learn more about you? And, and um, I'll post the link to your TEDx talk and, and your websites and everything, but what what do you offer people and, and how can they continue to learn from you after this interview?
1: Yeah, so um, my website is www.yourgpsdoc.com. There are blog articles there, you know, lots of tips and information about navigating the healthcare system. There's a contact page. So if someone's interested in working with me or just wants to learn more about how I work with individuals, um, you can always reach out to me there. Um, there's a services page where you can see all of the ways that I help um, families and, and the individuals for whom they care. Um, and then on social media, I would love for you all to follow me on social media. I have a weekly, Facebook live show called Navigator Nuggets, where we talk all about how to navigate healthcare. For the last month and a half, every episode has been dedicated to coronavirus. Um, and so my Facebook page is also, you know, if you search your GPS doc, really on all social media, I'm your GPS doc. So on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Nicole Rochester. And I would love for you all to reach out to me. I would love to engage with you on social media and continue this conversation.
0: Your navigator nuggets are so good. I had that's what I saw on LinkedIn. I think you reposted it yeah, from yeah. Facebook, and Thank I you. watched like all forty-one minutes. I was telling her before the show, like it was so good, and I was just so the the way you're explaining these really complicated issues that can be very polarizing um, and and shut a lot of people down. I thought you just Explained it in a way that was very accessible and um, and compassionate, which um, as you and I were talking about, I sometimes <laughs> haven't found that finesse yet. So um, it's so, it's so good and so informational, uh, so educational, and um, I loved your your three nuggets at the end. So for anyone who watches that, make sure you you stay tuned for that. So um, you. thank you so so much. I hope you have a good weekend and. Um, Stay safe and keep doing all the amazing work you do. And um, thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today.